you know, I, I got my last ferret from a rescue because I had, I actually didn't even know that there were ferret rescues before, before that. Um, but you know, I learned so much from working with them and, um, and that's again, where I found the vet that actually worked for our ferrets. But, um, it, I think it's, it's unethical to get pets from pet stores these days. Hello and welcome to Stolen Our Hearts, the podcast about ferrets and other exotic pets. I'm your host, Nairi, and with me today is a guest to talk about some of the ethical concerns to do with various pets. We talk about animal friendship and animal advocacy and some research about sheep and do they have friends and farm animals having personalities and big cats, veganism, zookeepers, dog training postage stamp, zoo history, ferrets, civets and ethical farming among some other topics as well. Uh, This episode is going to be split into two because it goes for an hour and 20 minutes. Um, What's with the cow thing? You'll hear us talking about a cow picture um, behind Marika's head in the... um, in her little podcasting studio she had a beautiful bright coloured picture of a really gorgeous cow (laughs) and we both love it. Anyway, enjoy. Gorgeous cow. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? A friend of mine gave it to me. I kind of took it, but you know, she gave it to me. You stole the cow. Okay. <laughs> I didn't steal the cow. It was, she was moving and I was like, oh, I love your cow. And she goes, you know, you can have my cow. So, and then I, of course I took it because yeah. I wasn't going to get her really nice chance cow. to change her mind. <laughs> Um, so after we've talked about the cow, um, I suppose I should get you to introduce yourself. Um, yeah, uh, sure. I'm Marika Bell. I am the host of a podcast called The Deal with Animals. It's an anthrozoology podcast about the connection and interaction between humans and non-human animals. Hmm. And um, oh, what else do you want to know? What? does that mean I guess like I mean I already know that but maybe the listeners might yeah. not understand what that means okay so anthrozoology um, is really an interdisciplinary uh, area of research that covers really all of the aspects of the connections that humans and animals have so mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people when they think of you know a human and animal connection they think of the bond like the pet bond when you when you have a pet living in your house. Mm-hmm. That is definitely an area of anthrozoological research. Um, and there's a lot of aspects even just to that, you know, there's, there's the um, aspect of whether animals um, are, are therapy for people or whether, uh, you know, they, they're good for kids or not good for kids, or, you know, there's, there's lots of different aspects of mm-hmm. animals who live in your home um, as you know, cause that's really what your podcast is about. But, you know, the other way that maybe people connect with animals and they don't really think about it this way is but with the food they eat. Mm-hmm. A lot of people eat animals. And there's a lot of research right now on, you know, people eating animals and yet saying that they're animal lovers. Mm-hmm. And this sort of 
cognitive dissonance between those two statements, which a lot of people would happily, you know, state one right after the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's that whole area, but there's also like the medical areas where animals are actually used in in medical research, but also in some of our um, vaccines and some of our you know surgeries. People use you know the the valve of a pig heart, and and that can then be in their body. And um, there's a lot of anthrozoological questions around um, what that actually means. Is that person not completely human anymore? Mm. You know, it, there, this post-humanist is is an area of anthrozoology, which means what what are humans after now? What what do we become if we start using animals in our bodies, and um, what does that actually mean? Hmm. But then there's there's history. You know, animals in our in 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 our books, animals in conservation, animals in our children's books and symbology and in our religions. And I mean, I could just go on forever, obviously. (laughs) Animals connect with us in many different ways. And that has always been really interesting to me. So that's why that's my area. Yeah. Yeah. And um, is that something you studied or is this just a personal interest? So I I have a master's in anthrozoology from Mm -hmm. the University of Exeter. Um, I originally got my bachelor's bachelor's degree in zoology because anthrozoology didn't really um, exist or was just starting to exist, I suppose, um, back when I got my bachelor's degree. Um, and uh, I, I've been in animal welfare for a really long time. So, and and the part of animal welfare I've been in has been in shelter work with cats and dogs, mm-hmm. um, primarily. And um, before that, I was doing dog training. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, parts to, I don't know, parts to my life, I guess, that have interacted with animals. And and that's just two of them. I mean, before that, I was um, working at a pet store. And before that, I was um, working in zoos as a volunteer. But I also worked with big cats in a big cat training center. Um, um so yeah, I've been I've been connecting with animals my entire life, and uh, as most of us have, but maybe for me it has been a, a very purposeful connection. That's fantastic. Um, do you have any pets of your own right now? I do. I currently have a seventeen-year-old dog who mm-hmm. is a Lancashire healer. He's a cattle herding breed from the UK. And we've had him since he was 16 weeks old and he is now just over 17. And I have a cat who we adopted last year. His name is Cloubash and he came with that name. I can't take credit. Uh, and he was a foster cat that uh, we, we agreed to foster through an organization that I work with um, called the Homeward Pet Adoption Center in Woodenville, Washington. And uh, I was fostering cats on and off for the year, you know, the, pre-pandemic. No, it was actually all through the pandemic, I guess, now that I think about it. Um, we started fostering and um, eventually we got to Clawbash and just thought, you know what, this guy fits in so well, we just have to keep him. Hmm. Does that mean you don't foster anymore or um, you still do? We put a slight halt on fostering because I I have only a, 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 a certain amount of bandwidth for yeah. caring for living things. And as much as I love to care for living things, if I don't put a, yeah, um, 
a limit, then mm. I will burn out. So I'm not fostering at the moment, although we're probably getting to the point where I feel like I could maybe foster cats again um, sometime soon. Mm. Yeah, that happened to me too. I had a foster fail, as they call it. And after that, all the animals were basically my own because it's so hard to have both the fostering and the caring for your own. They didn't get along, yeah. so. That's part of, the, <laughs> yeah, part of the issue is, yeah. is our older dog, he just doesn't love having other animals around and he, yeah. he got used to this one cat, but I just don't want to put any more stress on him either. So it's not just my bandwidth, it's, you know, the family bandwidth. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I was going to go back to your studies because you told mm -hmm. me earlier that you did a study on sheep that sounded pretty interesting. Um, yeah. So yeah. one of the research projects I did during my master's program um, was studying whether sheep form friendships. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think a lot of us who live with animals would say, of course, animals form friendships. But again, sheep are one of those animals that people don't think about very much, except when they're maybe eating it and they're thinking, Ooh, how tasty is this, you know, lamb or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, they're wearing a nice wool sweater or uh, they just see the cute lambs in the field if they live rurally and, and they're adorable and they just don't think about it beyond <laughs> that. Um, you know, people, people have this idea of sheep in general being, kind of followers, not very smart, um, you know, if, if they think about sheep at all. And yeah. and I wanted to, I had the opportunity to, to live with some sheep, not, I didn't live in the field <laughs> or anything, but I was in the farmhouse near some sheep. And I decided to do my research project on um, the interactions that sheep have with each other and whether they choose to be around and hang out with certain other sheep, or if it's just sort of random and they just sort of like intermingle and, you know, mm -hmm. like they just don't care who they're with. Um, because I think a lot of us, when they think about a sheep flock, they're just like, oh, it's a flock of sheep. You don't really think about those relationships with mm -hmm. these sheep, you know, they live with each other all the time. And, and I would assume that they would form relationships, particularly when the sheep I first met um, were escapees. Basically they'd broken out of the farm up the hill from us. <laughs> and, had traveled down the road and found our field, which had not been recently mowed or anything. It was a big four acre <laughs> plot that was fenced and they came wandering in and, and I looked out the window one day and there were sheep in our field. And I was like, ah, do we have sheep? Like, I don't, I don't think we have sheep. Um, so we shut the gate and kept them in there so they wouldn't go wandering up the road. And then we started asking around, you know, whose sheep might these be? And uh, we got a few people saying, oh, it's probably, you know, these people because their fences aren't in the best shape. <laughs> and uh, so we said, okay, well, uh, we went, we contacted them and they, uh, yeah, yeah, those are our sheep. Um, we'll come get them tomorrow if that's okay. And, you know, that's fine. By the way, delete any of this is a super boring um, <laughs> story, but they... Uh, they came down and we had a chat and they said, you know, we actually really would like to use your field because, you know, our field gets grazed out sometimes and the sheep obviously like to be down here. So would you mind if we bring more sheep <laughs> and and they would graze your feed field for you? You don't need to mow it. And 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 I my husband, and I thought about it and, you know, I've been an animal advocate for um, a long time and I was I was just starting this anthrozoology master's program and um and we needed our field grazed. But I also 
really had had already thought what am I going to do with this field? And I would really like to start some sort of animal sanctuary. Mm-hmm. So uh, I told them that they could, in fact, use our field. Um, but as payment, we would uh, they would surrender some of the sheep to us and we would keep mm-hmm. those sheep as part of the sanctuary. And and so they, they agreed to that. They brought down some more sheep. And most of these were moms and um, their lambs from that season. And so I got to see some of those interactions. So when the class came up to, to pick some sort of project to do some field research, um, I thought it would be really interesting to, to look at these relationships because it really was very obvious that the moms and the babies had a very close relationship. Mm. Um, the moms were, were moved off the field at one point um, because they are then put back into the breeding stock for the farmer. And um, just the sheep that we had picked to, to keep, plus um, those lambs that were now essentially adult sheep, um, were on the field. And there was about 30 of them. And I just thought, okay, well, let's, the, none of these sheep are actually related. Well, maybe they have the same father. Um, I don't know who the mm-hmm. fathers were, but they all had different moms. And, um, and let's, you know, let's see how they interact. And, and so I did some research and I, I, it was mostly observational where we, we would look at um, how close, cause we wanted to be very objective, mm-hmm. how close each of the sheep were to each other at any given time. And so we took yeah. random samplings over um, a, Ooh, I have to look it up now. I think it was like a three month period, but maybe that was the full research. Maybe, maybe the actual, um, observations were only in a month, maybe it was 30 days, but it wasn't a huge period of time. So if anybody wants to continue this research, I would suggest a longer period of time, but we would look at who they were hanging out with essentially and what they were doing. So how close were they? Were they regularly in the same proximity as other sheep? Um, and we used sheep lengths to determine how close they were so that, you know, you could say, okay, there's this one's standing three sheep lengths away from that one. And, you know, these ones are one sheep length away. Um, and then I just, I just took, you know, observational samples throughout that time period um, and then collated them all into some research and, and took a look and to see what, what it was. So my, my hypothesis, of course, was that, yes, they probably do form relationships, but what does that look like? So um, when I looked at the research, uh, I did find that they formed relationships, or at least they certainly seem to prefer to hang out with other sheep, um, often because they were either doing something, I get maybe they enjoyed what they were doing or they would hang out with those particular sheep or they had a similar level of anxiety. So like I found that there was this kind of sub flock among the flock sometimes, like a click almost if it was a human or a click. Um, and they would, they would hang out together in one little area uh, away from the other main flock or, and then this little sub flock would often be together. And, and so there were actually sub flocks within the main flock that would hang out. And, um, and they were often of similar interest, you know, they wanted to do the same things at that particular time, but it seemed to be not just random for who wanted to graze versus who wanted to hide, um, versus who wanted to come and get some treats. It was really about these particular sheep regularly like to hide together. And these particular sheep regularly like to graze together. Mm. Um, and these sheep were really happy to come up and take treats, um, together, so I did find that they tended to form relationships and, and some of that, you know, we found 
a little bit more depth to that, or I found a little more depth to that as well in terms of some sheep being um, sort of leader sheep, where the other sheep would sort of look to that sheep to to figure out what that sheep was going to do, and then they would follow that sheep. Um, and and so there was there was some really interesting ap- aspects to their behavior, and uh, and yes, I believe they do form friendships, and um, and it was it was it was fun to do because you know sheep. Yes. I'm, what I'm, and I'm hoping with that research, which I am hoping to get published at some point mm-hmm. soon, um, is that it can be used in in a few different ways. One is is this idea of narratives, which is a really important idea um, in social justice areas as well as in animal um, advocacy. In that, when people get to know a certain animal, they start to realize that that animal is an individual. Mm-hmm. And so when people learn about a sheep that forms friendships and maybe they want to find out more about that, they learn that these aren't just generic sheep, that these sheep have names. At least these ones had names because that's how I could tell them apart. And they had preferences. And when something has a preference, it's an individual. Mm-hmm. And if something is an individual, then it has opinions and it has feelings and it has emotions and, um, and maybe people need to think about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, to say what they should think about or, or what conclusions they should come to, but I think that the more that we think about animals and our interactions with them, uh, the better probably. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Hmm. I definitely have some cognitive dissonance myself on yeah, animals. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I went into this master's program, um, a few years back, it was 2016. And, um, and I wasn't even, I mean, veganism, I mean, I know about veganism, had plenty of vegan friends. Becoming vegan was not on my radar. Um, I'm still not vegan, although I have definitely been cutting down on my meat intakes as well as just animal products use, um, Mm. because of what I learned through the program, you know, the research that I got to read about, and, and saw, um, it just really, it opened my eyes to a lot more of that connection between humans and other animals than I had ever thought about before. Mm. Yeah. I think lots of people, um, <clears throat> and this won't be a big surprise or a big revelation or anything, but lots of people have the issue where they, they know one particular animal, mm-hmm. like through a story maybe even, but then they'll still go and eat its friends. <laughs> but um yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's so just it's it seems strange. to be the human condition in some ways. Like, and we do it with humans as well, obviously. Like, mm-hmm. we know other humans, but in the past, we would have been enslaved or, mm. in some cases, eaten or attacked their neighbors. And we don't have the that's yeah. like, oh, that's fine, they're just a different color, that's fine. Like, yeah. <laughs> Or, you know, yeah. just they, they think differently. Well, this tribalism is definitely a very human. Exactly. And so I think we put thing. the animals into tribes in our. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that's kind of what I'm mm. getting at is that that they're not that different from us. No. And I think the more we can recognize that. And, and you bring up a really interesting point, too, in that if we can really understand that connection with animals and see animals as individuals, um, it's going to be a lot easier to see humans that way as well. So yeah. that connection that we have to animals, you know, if, if an animal can be an individual, then a human you don't know is definitely an individual, you know, and it's so easy to not think about 
the humans living way over on the other side of the planet yeah. as just this mass of people that we don't really care about and aren't really, yes, they're human, but are they really like us, you know? Mm. And that whole like us mentality is I think that tribalism again, that people, once they realize that, yeah, they're like us because we're all very similar. Mm. And I think the true is that the same is true for um, most animals, if not all animals. I mean, I, I guess insects, I have less of an mm. idea of what insects are like and uh, whether they're individuals to, or not. But I was um, speaking to someone who said that, yes, they, they're insects that they have as pets. Mm -hmm. Some of them do have personalities. Like yeah. this one is more confident or this one mm -hmm. is shy and always under this rock. And yeah. it's like, wow, okay. It doesn't yeah. surprise me. I just I, I just don't know any insects that well. Yeah. And does personality equal? Like, if they've got a personality, again, what does that mean? So Yeah, what does that mean? It might mean nothing to a person, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's a good moral exercise, if nothing Absolutely. else, um, for people to think about, I think. Hmm. Yeah. And then there are the monks and things who sweep in front of them so they don't accidentally even kill an ant and mm. that kind of level of yeah have you, are... have you seen the good place it, uh, that reminds me of that as well um have you seen the yes. good place uh -huh. so the guy yeah. yeah the guy who is oh no the snail and I accidentally killed him and he has to have a funeral for it and um yeah it's yeah I loved that show what that level so of care does a human need to have to not go crazy yeah. and and that's yeah it's a really good question because like where do we draw the line you know is yeah. is, is there yeah. a line and and I think it's a very personal area but it's an also an area of growth for people and mm. and I'm, I'm a big proponent of you know development self-development and self-improvement and and I think that the whole idea of not eating animals when we don't have to yeah is makes a lot of sense to me I mean, yes, of course, we can call it a natural thing because, of course, it is. You know, I'm not against carnivores. Um, I love lions. They're one of my favorite animals. And I'm always rooting for the lion to catch the gazelle or whatever because, you know, I, I want the baby lions to eat. Um, but, you know, as humans, we don't have to do that. So maybe we shouldn't. I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of animal advocates out there that that think about this a lot more than I do and think it think it through a lot more than I do. But um still interesting yeah hmm. yeah what was like oh gosh now I was thinking of something in the middle of that and now I forgot what it was oh well it might come back to me that's okay <laughs> um I guess I not the best transition in the world but you said you worked that's with cats uh, like um was it big cats, big cats? yeah I'd love yeah. to know more about that that was my transition. Um, there. Gazelles, big cats. gazelles, and big cats. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, uh, for for a little under two years, um, in the middle of my college, my university degree, I um I took a break from the university degree, and went to a uh, organization that um, trained zookeepers, and it was not accredited, but they would um take the money and uh, show you how to be a zookeeper. 
and in some cases show you how not to be a zookeeper. Um, but in any case, I would do it again because it was an amazing experience and I got to, you know, hang out with tigers and lions and mountain lions and I don't know, so many big cats. And it was an amazing experience. I met some excellent friends during that time as well. You know, and I, and I think I learned a lot about um, just myself during that period of time. You know, you're working with big cats and, and you know, you, you're standing there staring at an, a carnivore like that, like a really big carnivore, you know, and, and you have to show some respect for sure. Uh, because if, if you don't respect them, then they will make you respect them. Um, but you, you also have to know their language a little bit, you know, you have to know what they're going to respond to. And, um, I think when I was working with big cats was actually the first time I was introduced to clicker training, which is this, uh, for people who don't know a clicker is a marker. So it doesn't have to be this little, it's usually a little toy clicker. Um, but you can now get them at pet stores to do, do dog training. Um, but also big cat training, it turns out. Um, and a clicker is a marker. It's for marking behavior so that you can better communicate to the, to the animal being trained, what it is that they did that was the thing that you wanted. So you click the moment they do the thing and then you give them a reward and they connect those things and go, right. Every time I do this, I get a reward. And whenever I hear that noise, it means the reward is coming. So that was what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I was introduced to clicker training so that we could work with the big cats because there was always, you know, almost always a fence between us and the animals. And it was a way of communicating with a big dangerous animal. And I, I really brought that on to when I started doing dog training, you know, after working with big cats, I wasn't really afraid of dogs at all, you know, because <laughs> tigers <laughs> are a little bigger and, um, and dogs, at least, you know, understand dogs. We all understand dogs better than we understand a big cat. So um, I, I started doing clicker training and taking on clients and I would take on aggressive cases. And it, it became apparent to me that a lot of dog trainers wouldn't take aggressive dogs. They wouldn't train with aggressive dogs. Um, and, and I don't know if that was for liability reasons or they were worried about getting hurt, but a lot of people just wouldn't do it. And I really had no problem with it because again, I just had this idea of, okay, if, if I can work with a big cat that definitely wants to eat me, then I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable working with a dog that maybe wants to bite me. So I think it really worked really well. And, and then it also became apparent to me that when people do work with dogs, when they do dog training, the reason I was so comfortable with it is because I really knew how to communicate with the dogs through the use of this clicker, um, what it is that I was trying to ask them. And most of the dogs are super confused when they're being trained um, and they haven't been trained well. It's because they are not sure what they were being asked to do. Mm -hmm. So they are trying to do it, but they don't understand and they might get frustrated or they might get angry because now somebody's angry at them and they're trying to, you know, feel like, if they're being corrected, maybe that's painful. Um, and so they defend themselves and they bite. And then somebody goes, Oh my God, now I have an aggressive dog. Mm. What now I, you know, what am I going to do? And none of the other trainers will work with me now because my dog bit me or bit them or bit somebody. So what I came to realize was that you don't, you shouldn't ever have to correct a dog with pain or 
with punishment in that way. You know, they don't need pain and fear to learn things the -hmm. same way a tiger or a lion does not need pain or fear to learn things. You know, if they did, then... (laughs) you know, we don't put choke chains or prong collars or shock collars on a tiger. If we need the tiger to move from point A to point B, we have to convince them. We have to tell them what we want and we have to show them what to do and then, you know, reward them for it because they're doing something for us. Mm-hmm. And, and eventually, I mean, some of the cats and some of the dogs, they want to do it because it's fun. And that's great too. But um, you shouldn't have to punish a dog to get them to do what you want them to do. Uh, because if you did, then then you would have to punish a big cat also. And that just doesn't work. So, so that's sort of the mentality I took into my dog training was that if you don't have to punish a tiger, then you definitely don't have to punish a dog. Yeah to get them to do what you want. And, and all of my dog training really stemmed from, from doing positive reinforcement dog training. And, you know, the world is punishing enough as it is. It doesn't need me to add anything to it. So that's, that's sort of where I, where I came from with dog training and it seemed to work really well for me. Hmm. I think so. Um, Lots of people argue that ferrets should be punished when they bite people. And it's like, well, that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like gentle stuff. Timeout is the worst punishment they get, and it's only for two minutes so at most, say. So. Yeah, I mean, taking yeah. something away that somebody wants is a punishment, but it's a it's what we call a negative punishment. You're removing something from the situation um, that is something that they want. So it's, it's a very, you know, um, mild kind of punishment. Exactly. And I think it gets the point across very well. If they want attention or they want to come out and play, then they've got to stop biting. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. Right. I think that works pretty well for ferrets. Yeah, it yeah. does. They, um, they enjoy biting <laughs> and you have to train them not to. So yeah. That's the biggest yeah. Part of ferret training. Yeah. Um, with the cats, why were they there? Like that mm-hmm. question. Um, mm-hmm. Were, was it like a private zoo or was it a private collection of pet cats? So this or? particular zoo was it open was to the zoo. public, but it was not an accredited zoo. So it wasn't like part of any kind of um, network of um, AZA type organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were privately owned animals through this gosh, I don't even know if they were a nonprofit. They might have been a nonprofit or they might have, you know, might have been set up as a nonprofit for tax reasons. I don't, I don't know that much. Um, it's been a while, but um, they, they would generally get their animals because people in the United States will try to keep these animals as pets. Um, yeah. That so, really surprised me when we, when that Tiger King show came out, we're like, what is this? <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Why are there so many privately owned I did not. I could not watch that. It was, it hit way too close to home. Um, so yes. And those people are out there and it's generally kind of a sleazy business. Um, almost always kind of a sleazy business. Um, this, this exotic, uh, pet trade in big cats. And a lot of the stories of the cats at this place were that sort of story where mm-hmm. somebody had somehow picked up a, a cub or a kit at, you know, a very young age and, kept it until it became um, more mature and started, you know, being more uh, territorial 
And then they would go, oh, well, <laughs> I can't have this anymore. And so they would Ooh. either abandon it or dump it or um, call us up and say, hey, can you take this pet that I've had? And in some cases, if there was room, um, the, the organization would say, yeah, sure. You know, but mostly I mean, we're, we were full because there was a lot of that going on. Wow. Um, some of the animals though came from like, I remember we had some Puma cubs, cubs that showed up because uh, the mom had been, I think she'd been hit by a car. Okay. And so they found the cubs near the mom's body and, you know, rescued the cubs and then they brought them to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but other times there was, there was some breeding that went on among the animals at the zoo that um, was probably not the best arrangement. Um, and so that did happen as well. And I, I believe that that happened primarily because having cute cubs brought people in, you know, if you said you've got this cute cub, people can come pet it, then yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to come and see them? So uh, some of that went on as well. Primarily though, it was rescue from, from bad situations. So when you say they dumped them, did they just literally leave a animal on the side of the road one of these um so there was a a lion cub that was found in a box in a field Um, somebody got this lion cub because they really liked the um the 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 football team's mascot was a lion okay and so they they were i mean you were able to pick up a lion cub for a couple hundred bucks to be honest really okay Um, you know where to, to look yeah and so they picked up this lion cub and then it turned out that the area they picked the you know they were living in it actually was illegal to have a big cat. Um, and when they realized this, they, they dumped the lion in this box in the field and um, left it there just, mm-hmm. I guess, to die. But the, the family were like, oh, what happened to that lion cub you had? And when he told them what he did, they called authorities anonymously, apparently, and said, hey, there's a lion cub in a field. Could somebody please go rescue it? And then uh, that lion cub was then sent to this organization. Wow. Um, yeah. And it lived its, his entire, his entire life there after that, which isn't ideal because, you mm-hmm. know, these organizations, um, do the best they can for sure, but it's not ideal. It's, you know, a 20 by 30 enclosure if they're lucky and, and they're well-fed and, you know, cleaned, but it's not, it's not where they should be. No. Mm. Okay, I'm going to cut it there. Thank you so much for talking with me, Marika. The next episode will be a continuation of this conversation. If everyone could go and check out Marika's podcast, which is The Deal With Animals, and you can find it on any podcasting website or app, I guess, um, any podcasting app. Um, this is what happens when I don't have a script. <laughs> um, and you can hear a lot of very intelligent conversations about how we interact with animals in our lives and throughout history it is fascinating and i love listening to it so yeah come back listen to the rest of it and go and listen to her too great talk to you soon